0: Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Pride, zexio sun mountain golf bags finn scooters making the game more fun bionic gloves and the mclemore club experience life above the clouds now here's your host chris mascaro Happy Women's Golf Day, everyone. Today is a day dedicated to bringing more wonderful women into the game of golf, plus celebrate the great ones we already have. I want to send out a special shout-out to the great women who have made such a positive impact on the game and to this show. People like Cindy Miller, Lisa Longball-Vluswick, Susie Whaley, Debbie O'Connell, Debbie Doniger, Maureen Medill, Natalie Sherry, Rhonda Ferguson, Kelly Stenzel, Sue Weiger. Nancy Corsellino, Avery Zweig, Jane Geddes, Missy Bertiotti, and one of my guests tonight, Michelle Holmes. You ladies are fantastic. Thank you for the great contributions you've made to this game and to this show. Women's Golf Day has events going on in 900 locations in 68 countries. Giving women the opportunity to explore getting lessons, joining leagues, getting access to teachers, and just getting involved with a game of golf. It's a wonderful event, making free resources available to girls and women who want to play. Go online to womensgolfday.com for more information. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and I'm really excited about tonight's show because I've got a resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick, back with me. How can you not be excited when you have a legend like Tom leading off an all-star lineup? I'll talk to TP tonight about, and stop me if you recognize this, Short game, short game, short game. As I put the finishing touches on my preparation for my annual buddy's golf trip, which is coming up next week at the McLemore, which I couldn't be more excited about. So I need Tom's help. I got to get a little short game help. Got to get some putting help. We'll also talk about the PGA Championship and a whole lot more when TP joins me in just a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a return visit from four-time winner on tour and another guy who has become a fantastic instructor now, and that's Chip Beck. We'll talk about his memories of playing at the Ocean Course at Kiwa Island during the 1991 Ryder Cup. It was a very young course back then, and according to a Golf Digest article I read, and one columnist wrote about the course, you have to wonder why in the world the PGA of America would take the Ryder Cup to an unfinished golf course in a mosquito-infested swampland designed by an architect the players universally despise. Wow. Let's see about uh, that and how Chip felt about that and maybe the other players as well. Plus, he was paired with Paul Azinger in both rounds of the Friday matches, so the early and the afternoon rounds, against Seve and Jose Maria Olathabal. And remember, Seve and Azinger hated each other following the 89 Ryder Cup. We'll hear from Chip about what it was like being immersed in that grudge match when he joins me about 25 minutes from now. Following him, I'll get a return visit from perhaps the best U.S. kids instructor on the planet, and that's Michelle Holmes. We'll hear what Women's Golf Day means to her, plus how we as parents can do a better job of supporting our junior players versus putting pressure on them to hit every shot perfectly, and then the expressions that we carry on our faces if they've hit a bad shot, and the message it sends to them. So how can we be better parents and better caddies if we happen to be caddying for our junior player as well? Looking forward to having Michelle back as part of the show. She'll join me about 50 minutes from now. And then we're going to round out tonight's show with a visit from my favorite golf course designer, and that's Bill Bergen. As you know, Bill co-designed the McLemore, but he's done close to a 100 either original designs or renovation projects around the world. So we're looking forward to having Bill back as part of the show and hearing about the, the work he's going to be doing at TP's Winter Home Course, Crown Colony plus a second 18 holes up at McLemore. I'm hearing rumors. We'll talk about that in his other projects, plus some of the memories he's had from his playing career when he joins me a little over an hour from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. And thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, got to remind you again about our friends up there at the McLemore. Again, my buddies and I are headed up there next week for our annual golf trip. It's finally next week. I can't wait to get up there. So excited to play the course and see the other wonderful amenities that they have up there. The Macklemore is a beautiful community resort and golf course, just 35 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, up on Lookout Mountain. Folks, go online to themacklemore.com to see how spectacular the place is. Their new clubhouse and bar are open. The Krieg is a great place to have dinner and drinks with scenic vista views uh, from Lookout Mountain. So you look out over the valley and all around Chattanooga. It looks absolutely spectacular. The course is co-designed by our good friends, Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. And our friend and PGA tour caddy Kip Henley said, outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. And Golf Digest agreed, oh, by the way, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. See why everybody is saying that by checking out the course and the resort online at themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by TaylorMade and their TP5 and TP5X golf balls. High draw, check. Low fade, check. Bump and run, out of the sand or flop shot, check, check and check. No matter what shot you need to pull off, there's one ball that's better for them all, and that's the new TP5 and TP5X from TaylorMade. With a newly redesigned dimple pattern that decreases drag and increases lift, it's the number one ball in golf, no matter the shot. So whether you need to hit it high over the trees, under or even through them, hit TP5 or TP5X, the one ball designed to handle it all. Check them out online by going to TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information. All right, now back in for a staggering 51st time as our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick. Tom has now settled into his new summer location at Farmington Country Club up in Charlottesville, Virginia. So if you're in or anywhere near Virginia, West Virginia, or the Washington, D.C. area, And you want to get lessons from a top instructor who will help you win whatever level you are competing at. Even if you're like me and all you're competing for is for your buddies to buy your beer or dinner following the round, Tom Patry is your guy. If you can't go see Tom in person, you can download the V1 video app and send him videos of your golf swing and he can help you get dialed in through the app. Please check out his website, TomPatry.com and subscribe to his newsletter while you're on there. You can also subscribe to his YouTube channel and watch over 150 free playing lessons while you're on there. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Tom Golf. and it's always an honor to have TP as part of the show. Good evening, Tom. How are you, my friend? It's always good to have it. We're going to kick off the next 50 episodes with a little variation of it. There you go, my friend. How are you?
1: I'm I'm doing great, Chris. You're really doing good. How are you doing, pal? Everything good?
0: Ah, everything's great. How can it not be? I get to talk to you tonight. Everything else pales uh, in comparison to spending time with you, my
1: friend. <laughs> it's going to be like that. Okay, here
0: we go. Here we go. <laughs> hey, how are things going up in uh, in Charlottesville? What's, uh, what's been the latest over the last couple of weeks at Farmington Country Club?
1: Yeah, we're doing great because it's really uh, – Great reception, really great reception by the membership. Uh,
0: it, it's been terrific. Um, I,
1: I've you know gotten to play the golf course a couple of times now. I Really like it a lot. Great facility. Um, we had a little bit of a, a down over more of the weekend. We had some bad weather, but uh, with the five bay indoor teaching building, TP lost zero lessons because of that teaching building. It's spectacular. Um, and I've got to, I've got to explore a little bit. I've been over to the UVA campus a couple of times. It's it's fantastic. It's just gorgeous. It really is pretty. Uh, and, and the town is great. It's alive. Even though, even though school is really out, there's still a lot of students, graduate students around town. And, you know, college towns have such a great vibe anyway. So it's fun. I've been having, I've been having a good time. I'm, I'm prepping a little bit right now, trying to get some extra reps in. I've got the U.S. Senior Open qualifier on June 7th at the, uh, at the Homestead, two hours from here. And I'm excited about that. 86 players with two spots. I'm going to go over
0: there wow. role. a roll. Wow. Yeah, so good gonna, luck to you, my friend. That's, that's yeah, tough odds, but if anyone can overcome them, it's Tom Patrick.
1: No, no, no. we going to go over the day before, play a practice round, see the place. I played there about 20 years ago, Chris, and I remember it being a really good golf course, the Cascades course, being a really good par 70. So uh, I don't think the scores will be really low there. I think there'll be, you know, a couple under we'll probably get in. So, uh, you know, why shouldn't it be me, right?
2: Why not? That's right. Why not you?
0: Right, exactly. Tom. We haven't spoken yeah. since uh, Phil's big win at the PGA Championship. Got to get your thoughts. What do you think? What uh, What you saw from Phil and what you saw of the golf course?
1: Well, I mean, the golf course obviously obviously won the tournament. You know, I mean, the golf course was the winner. Um, Phil did a. You know, I'm not a big Phil fan, as you know, Chris. But I mean, my hats off to Phil Mickelson. That was a hell of a performance uh, in in very very difficult conditions. You know, 50 years old. What a tremendous accomplishment! The one thing I'll say, and listen, I'm not taking anything away from the accomplishments. It's, it's it's good for golf. It's good for senior golf. It's good for regular golf. It's it's good for golf. Period. Um But if we if we go back not too long ago, imagine, and he was 50 when Phil was 50. Right, pulling this off. Imagine if Watson had pulled off that last oh, par God. on 18 at Turnberry. And and I still I still can see that second shot coming right. And, and I played golf there. He had a perfect golf shot, and how that ball released the way it did, I can still see that happening. I remember, he was he would have been 60 at the time. So if he had, my my only comment is this: If, if and I'll, I want to get your take on this, Chris, if Watson had pulled off that British at 60, would we be talking much about Phil at 50?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Probably not. And I and I'm with you. I remember that golf tournament. I was rooting so hard for Watson to pull it off. And I remember that shot too. I remember it releasing over the green. I thought you got to be kidding me. Really, we're going to have to go to a playoff. And does he have it? You know, to win in a playoff. And you know, and I feel bad for Stewart Sink because I think everyone hates Stewart Sink for having won that golf tournament. Um,
1: But yeah, you you can't think it. You can't think anywhere from sink. I mean, he obviously won the golf tournament. You know, it's a playoff and you win. But when he hit that second shot in there, I didn't think there was any way. I, I thought he was hit he a, a spectacular golf shot in there. You know, we flagged it and, you know, golf gods weren't with him and it wasn't his
0: time. Yeah, that's a, that's one of those that I still lament that that, that that win didn't happen. It's not unheard of, Tom, that somebody north of 50 can compete in a major championship, or what is the the fifth major, right? at the players. So I know we all like to have recency and think, you know, hey, Phil's the only one to ever do this or uh, or, or whatnot. But this, we haven't gotten the, the the win. So Phil obviously he, he is the oldest major champion, got it. But other guys have been there to give it to give it a run. So this isn't unheard of, right?
1: Yeah, I mean Jay Haas, who's a who's a wonderful guy, just one of the really. Great people in professional golf all time. Uh, I had a conversation, you know, not too long ago, and I, I asked him how come he had such a great senior career after, a, you know, it's kind of a journeyman regular career. And he says, "Tom, you know, the golf ball doesn't know how old you are, you know." And I think that I think that speaks volumes. I mean, the golf ball does not know how old you are. So if you're keep yourself in reasonable condition, and you know, so many of these guys are in better shape now coming off the regular tour. Um, and, and they're still competitive, and they still want to play, and they they can still they can still hit it out there pretty good. You get the right conditions, especially firm and fast conditions, like there was a Kiwa, and like you have at British. You know, it's. I think you'll see it happen again. I think now you know it's kind of like the kind of like when Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile. You know, we were told that the human male could not run a sub four minute mile, and I don't know if you this, this, when Bannister broke that record. Uh, the four minute mile, not too, not too, not, not a few weeks after that, two other guys broke, broke the, broke the four minute mark again. Yeah. So, you know, the mind is an interesting thing, boy. When the mind gets the green light and understands, hey, this is possible, it does incredible things. So I don't think
2: we're I don't think this is over. I don't think this is over at all.
0: Tom, one of the things that now people are saying with respect to Phil and his career that that win puts him in the top 10 all time.
1: Is he in that conversation now? Well, I
0: mean, you know, God, that's a
1: hard one, isn't it, Chris? I mean, if you start naming names of all time in top ten, I mean, if we put the if we put the 50 candidates down to the top ten, we could easily come up with 50 names that have had incredible careers. And, you know, and you go back to Hagen and you go back to, you know, Bobby Jones and you get got to put Steve in that conversation and Byron Nelson in that conversation, you know, and, uh, but Phil has, you know, Phil has a boatload of wins. 45, I believe. Is that right, Chris? That's right. I'm just going to, I'm going from memory. You're 45 and six, right? Um, that's right. I, I mean, that's a hell listen, if, if, if Tiger Woods didn't exist, Phil Mickelson would be the greatest player of this generation. I mean, hands down, right? You take Tiger out of the mix and, and Phil
2: is, Phil, Phil is, is the man. You know, and
1: he just came along at the wrong time with Pfeiffer hey, there. But, and again, I'm not a big Phil fan, but you can't, you cannot shake your head at Phil's career. It, it's an incredible, incredible body of work. I mean, obviously, we missing the U.S. Open, and I'm sure he has nightmares about Wingfoot, Phil, um, and the Jeff, Jeff Ogilvy win, but you, 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 you gotta have an awful lot of respect for his, his playing career.
0: Tom, switching gears a little bit and talking about bodies of work. And I know you've got very little going well for you in sports right now with your Yankees circling the drain. <laughs> but, um, you got a wonderful message from one of uh, your junior players that you worked with, uh, when in over the winter down at Crown Colony. Uh, talk about your latest student victory. Yeah. Um, i met a
1: young man. I, Chris, I'm really lucky right now because. One, it's a long baseball season and I'm not really worried about that right now at all. I know you love taking your <laughs> shots and there. there's such, there's such trivial and juvenile cheap shots. I'll just overlook that right now. <laughs> um, with that second market team you for. But anyway, um, I'm pretty blessed right now. I've got a couple of really good players right now. Um, and the kid you're speaking about, Maverick Conway, was from the uh, Indianapolis area. Um, just the, uh, the Golf League Tour Championship, Junior Tour Championship um, in in Kentucky was played. And uh, I think he had 73, 73, 72 in pretty tough conditions uh, and shot 34 in his back nine coming in to win. Um, he, he's come down, like you said, a couple times over the winter. He, he's a V1 student. He's a regular V1 subscriber. So we're geographically unacceptable with each other. We, we, we change a lot of film. The kid is working very, very hard. He's long, he's got a lot of length, he's a tall, lanky kid. He's got a beautiful putting stroke, and he's got an incredible work ethic. So he puts, and the fact that he's very bright as well, he's got great grades in school. He's a bright kid, he works hard, um, you know, he does everything he asks him to do. He's kind of, a, kind of a model student, actually. I mean, he's a good athlete, he's a good basketball player, he's a good athlete, and he's got a work ethic. So, I mean, he's going to be successful, and he's not going to be successful just because of me. He's going to be successful because he's got great parents. Wonderful parents. He's a good player himself, and he's a hard worker. So he's got a lot of balls that are, you know, lining up in his court pretty nicely. Um I think, you know, it's still too soon to know this, but I think he's a pretty legitimate D1 possibility and a decent program. So I'm really excited for him. I'm really excited for the win. He won another tournament about two weeks ago as well. Um So he's on a little bit of a roll right now.
0: Tom, speaking of putting, I, I got to get some tips from you tonight because yeah, gotta, uh, as you know i've got gotta, my annual uh, buddies trip coming up I've next got, week i
1: i got to stop you right there a couple of your playing partners you has called me and asked me if i would just uh, not not you know not do this right now for you because they you know they feel like it's not really fair that you're trying to take an undue advantage of of my knowledge against <laughs> them. In. okay go ahead i'm sorry go ahead, go
0: ahead. We'll, we'll, we'll go ahead I'm sorry <laughs> Hey, hey! Everyone's got access to, to coaches. I just happen to have one on the other end of the line. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, all fair and love and golf, as they say. So, help me out putting wise, TP, because um one of the things that I'm working on is my stroke. And you know, Jackie Burke used to say 25% back, 75% through. Is that the is that the proper stroke length? What's uh, what's your philosophy on stroke?
1: You know, Chris, I, far be it from me to, to object or to, um, go the other way on Jackie Burke, who's one of the great golf minds of all time. I think that's changed a lot as green speeds have changed a lot. If you look at PGA tour strokes today, um, you see a lot of longer backstrokes and kind of cut off follow throughs. I mean, if you look at Prince Snedeker is probably the best example that comes to mind, but if you look at Justin Thomas, if you look at Ricky Fowler. Who's a wonderful putter. Um, there's not much of a follow through. It's more, it's more of a quasi top stroke. Um, I call it the hammer and nail because you don't take the hammer and put it through the sheetrock. You kind of hit it the, head of, the head of the nail and the hammer stops and all the energy goes into the nail. Well, I want all the energy going to the back of the ball. And I want it to be fairly short and crisp. So I'm, I've gone from being a symmetrical stroke putter, um, teaching you know, you know back and through is equal both in terms of length and pace. And I taught that way for a long time. And I do to sound like a hypocrite at age 62, but I'm kind of in the seneca camp right now. I like that little hammer and nail stroke. I like to put that, put some energy in the back of the ball and pop it a little bit. And of course, you have to calibrate that for speed purposes. And I, I wouldn't suggest, even though you have an incredible set of hands and you're an incredible athlete with, with your golf game with your buddies so close, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest making major changes right now. But it's something you might want to mess around with in the future a little bit.
0: The other thing I've noticed recently, Tom, is uh, particularly with uh, someone like DJ, when he gets in his setup over the ball and, and again, sticking with putting, he takes a left hand and he, and he reaches across to his right bicep area, right arm above the elbow. Yeah, and I think he's checking to make sure it's connected to his right rib cage. Is that is that something we do in our punting stroke as well? Do we want to stay connected with our elbows and our arms to our side, or is that something that he's doing for a, a different reason perhaps? No, I, I think you're right
1: on, Chris. I think you're absolutely right on. I, I'm a big believer in staying connected. And I, but I caution everybody when they look at somebody like DJ because you can't really get inside of him and feel what he's feeling. And I certainly do like the elbows closer and further away. But I just caution everybody that we want to take two aspirin, not the whole bottle. That you know we want to get connected, but we don't. We're not trying to jam our elbow against our side or put a lot of pressure against our rib cage. We're kind of more or less gently resting our arms across against the sides of our body and staying. Why would I call lightly connected? Um, but yeah, I, I like that. As a, I like that as a thought, I do.
0: And what about those three to five foot knee knockers, Tom? When when we're standing over them, we, we're trying to. For most of my buddies and I, weekend warriors, where if we've got those three to five footers, more times than not, it's not for birdie. It's to save par or, or to make a bogey. And and we don't. We certainly don't want to walk off a of green making worse than bogey because then we start to feel bad about ourselves and our frame of mind goes, you know, in the wrong direction as we head over to the next tee. So. What are some things that we can do on those three- to five-footers to make more of them?
1: Well, I, I think, you know, first of all, let's keep in mind every shot we hit on the golf course is one value, one. You know, the, the, the 250-yard drive and the five-footer are, are worth the same amount. You know, so they're all equal. And can, I think I, I call those three- to five-footers, you know, any putts inside 10 feet, I call those expectation putts because I think one of the things that really – puts us behind the eight ball, is we think when we get that close to the the hole that we should make them all, and and their expectation level is through the roof, and we can't often fulfill that expectation because the truth is, even the tour doesn't make every one of those putts, although they make a much higher percentage than the average golfer does. But I think the one of the things that we we do wrong is that we have worry going in, and we don't get committed to a positive thought and a positive mindset when hitting those putts. Chris, you know, I, I think we've talked about for every morning at work, when I get, whether it's a Crown Colony, when I'm down during the winter in Fort Myers and living in Naples, or here at Farmington, every morning after I get set up, I leave enough time to putt for 30 minutes, and part of that 30-minute period um, is is putts five feet and in, and I, I you know I'll, I'll putt two footers and three footers, you know, repeatedly because I don't want it to be surprised or have to think about it like it's something new. When I get to the third hole tomorrow and I've got, a, you know, I've got a three-and-a-half-footed downhill left to right, you know, I want to have seen that happen a thousand times already this week. You know, and people go to the putting green and they, you know, they put 20-footers and 30-footers. When was the last time, and I'm being serious with you, when was the last time you went to a green and for 30 minutes put three, a three-footer, just repeatedly hit three-footers for 30 straight minutes? Oh, never. Never. See, now, never... Because never, I don't you know this. Not never is a long time ago. That's a long time never. <laughs> um, so I think that we have we have a lack of preparation for the things that possibly trouble us or, or scare us or frighten us the most. So you've got to go to a green and you've got to stick a teeing three feet away. You know, and I'm, I'm just making this up. But on Monday, put three footers straight in the hole. And on Tuesday, three footers that go right to left. And on Wednesday, three footers that go left to right. And then on, th- on Thursday, three footers that go straight downhill. And, and, and I do that, you know, kind of around the horn and on a rotating basis throughout the week, every day, every day. And, and I've always been a pretty good putter and, 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 and I'm not really, I wouldn't call myself a natural putter. I, I call myself a developed putter. You know, I mean, natural putters are Crenshaw. Uh, an example of a developed putter during his PJ Tour career was Tom Tite, who just worked his rear end off on on his putting stroke. So I I think that some putters are born and the other, other other putters are made. I think it's possible to make yourself a good putter. And it takes a tremendous amount of work, and you've got to work on the things that trouble you the most, the distances that really bother you. And that, in your case, if it's if it's five feet and in, and five feet and in requires a lot of attention.
0: TP, just a couple more before I let you go. One of the other things that I wanted to get some help on is we're going to be out there playing at 8 a.m. So we'll be the dew sweepers for the three days that we're there. And conditions change, right? When you've got dew on the ground, the speed of the green is going to be different at 8 a.m. than it's going to be when we get to the back nine because evaporation will have happened and things of that nature. So you're going to have a variation uh, of that. And then when we're out playing on the courses, we are trying to get onto the green and the dew is in the rough, and that's going to have an impact on how far the ball flies and things of that nature. Talk to us about how do we make the adjustments for conditions when the ball is wet and and water gets between the club face and the ball. And then once we get on the green, how much that speed variation will happen based on the amount of dew at the beginning versus the end of the round. Well, the
1: first thing I always tell guys when they go away and the guys' golf trip together is, if you have an eight o'clock tee time, you should also make an eleven o'clock tee time, and you can always cancel the second one because there's this thing called drinking the night before, and sometimes the eight o'clock tee time we don't answer the bell. We don't answer. We don't answer the bell. Now I'm, I'm sure your guys don't do anything like that. You would never think of that, but but you might want to make that second time anyway. So do is a real thing. Do is a real thing in the morning. Do is a real thing in both in the rough and on the fairway. And anytime you get a substance between your golf ball and the face of the club, um, we've heard the term and for our listeners. The term flyer, and a flyer is anytime you get a substance either either a liquid or just some light blades of grass between the ball and the club. The ball comes off there with very little spin and it tends to go erratic distances. So. That's a real possibility. So one of the things you need to do, first of all, Chris, is after you've made your practice swing, if you make a practice swing, at any shot you can do on the ground, you need to wipe the face clean and make sure you've got no residue on the face from the practice swing, which guys don't think about doing. Because um, you want to minimize the possibility of the flyer lie or the flyer occurrence, okay? Um, if you feel like the ball is pretty wet laying on the ground if so you examine it, you might want to play that and understand that that's a possibility. So if you have a, you know, if you have a pin that's middle back and you take your yardage, you, you want to take the yardage for, you know, maybe 15 or 12 to 15 yards short of a pin. Because if you, if it releases and takes off on you, you want a little cushion there. And if it comes up short, at least you're underneath the hole and shipping or putting uphill. Um, you want to take that flyer, long flyer over the green out of play. Um, in the In the rough, if it's sitting down, you're not going to have a flyer. But when that grass is really wet and heavy, loft is your friend. So you want to loft up and, and just advance the golf ball and get it out there. You take a club or two and off in and really wet, heavy and rough. And and you're not going to get the club through the, through the grass and you're going to hit the ball five feet in front of you and you're going to be unhappy and why didn't Patrick warn me about that? It's his fault, not my fault, because it would never be your fault. As as, as a, as a, as as a Red Sox fan, it would never be your fault. Um, You're exactly right. Exactly. So those are a couple of things you have to look out for there. Um, I am really excited for you. I'm really, I'm really looking forward to hearing your report after you come back from there, because we've, me on this show, you especially, have talked up to Macklemore so much, and I've, I've seen all the pictures and heard all the reviews, and it's been so wonderful. And our good buddy, Bill Bergen, who you're having on later tonight, who's coming to do our work at Crown County for us. I'm so excited. He's been a, a longtime friend since college golf and one of the fine human beings on the planet. Uh, he and Reese, from what I understand, did a hell of a job up there. So I'm really I'm really anxious to hear the report about the place.
0: Tom, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date and get more of your wonderful lessons for themselves on your YouTube channel and uh, follow you on social media as well.
1: Yeah, because that YouTube channel is starting to get some action. We have about 100, and almost 150 videos up now. Uh, absolutely free for anybody who wants to jump in and get some information. Please subscribe to the channel. Tell your friends about it. We want to get more subscribers on that channel. But, you know, all the regular places, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram especially. I did a couple of live posts this week on Instagram uh, from my teaching team. Um, I enjoy doing that. And uh, the thing I really enjoy is coming on here with you and chatting with you. You're the best. you got a great lineup tonight. Please say hi to Chip Beck. Please say hi to Bill Bergen for me. They're both dear friends, and uh, as you are. And uh, I love being on here with you.
0: I appreciate you, Tom. Always uh, enjoyable getting to spend time with you tonight for a 51st time here on the show. You're fantastic, my friend. Stay safe. All the best to you and the family. Thanks, Tom. Have a great night. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. You too. Folks, that's the great Tom Patrick. Tom Patrick Golf is where you can find him on social media. And uh, the YouTube channel is fantastic. 150 videos on there for all of us for every aspect of your game, and it's available to all of us for free. So I highly encourage you to go check it out and subscribe to the channel while you're on there. Looking forward to catching up with TP again in a couple of weeks. Okay, before I get to my next guest, Chip Beck, I want to give a shout out to a few of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? I'll tell you what, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented square toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour, an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent tests prove it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to squares.com, that's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com, and get Squares' 30-day money-back guarantee. Use promo code DISTANCE for $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. And folks, I wouldn't tell you about it if I didn't experience it for myself. I've never felt more stable in my golf swing, which allows me to swing faster and launch it further. Squares, the distance golf shoe. I also want to give a shout out to another new sponsor, Bionic Loves. Do what you do better with Bionic Gloves. Whether you're looking to own the golf greens, improve your workouts, or get your hands dirty in the garden, Bionic Loves has you covered. Designed with a hand specialist, Bionic Loves feature patented innovations that help improve your grip. The strategically placed anatomical relief pads also prevent calluses and blisters, while the web and motion zones allow for greater dexterity and flexibility. Head over to BionicLoves.com to find the perfect glove to up your game. And I want to remind you about our friends over at Zexio. In 2001, Zexio Strixon began making clubs for men and women. And they've improved on those clubs every year since. Every part of Zexio Clubs are made exclusively for Zexio. Everything is light and balanced. Swing weights are made to give us the highest smash factors. And the best part of getting fit for Zexio Clubs is hitting it higher and straighter than ever before. Changing your game. Zexio Clubs are a Golf Digest Hot List Gold winner for 2021. Congratulations to Zexio Ambassador M.B. Park for her five-stroke victory earlier this year at the Kia Classic. It was her 21st victory and she did so using Zexio 11 woods and 10 irons. See how Zexio can help your game as well. Go online to ZexioUSA.com and pick which set is right for you. Okay, now next on the tee with me is four-time winner on tour Chip Beck. Chip is from Fayetteville, North Carolina. He played his college golf at the University of Georgia, where he lettered all four years from 1975 to 1978. He was a three-time All-American. He was named first-team All-American in 1977 and 78, and he was team captain his last three seasons. He helped lead Georgia to two SEC championships. His 66th in the 1978 Dixie Tournament still ranks as one of the best rounds in Georgia golf history, as does his season average of 71.61 in the 1977-78 season. His 27 top 10 finishes are still number one all-time in Bulldog history. He averaged eight top 10s for three straight seasons from 1975 to 78. He won back-to-back Carolina Amateur Championships. He won five times while he was at Georgia, including the Southern Intercollegiate Tournament, three times and the All-American Tournament plus that 78 Dixie Tournament. He won four times on the PGA Tour at the 1988 LA Open and a couple of months later at the USF&G Classic by a whopping seven strokes over Lanny Watkins. He also won the 1990 Buick Open and the 1992 Freeport Golf Classic. Chip famously shot 59 in the third round of the Las Vegas Invitational in 1991, becoming at the time only the second player to ever do it. He finished runner-up at the U.S. Open in 1986 and 1989, and in the 1993 Masters. He was a member of three Ryder Cup teams. In 2009, he was inducted into the Illinois Golf Hall of Fame. And I'm very honored to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Chip, thanks for coming back on the show.
1: I love your show. I'm so excited, man. You do your homework. I can't believe it. You know, one of the one of the things that came to my listening to Tom Patrick, one of the interesting things is I remember in 1983, the last hole of the Memphis Classic at the old Colonial Country Club. And I remember we all hit our second shots up there in the fairway. Like Fuzzy Zeller, Larry Mize, and I had three last shots. We were the last group in the tournament, and a rain delay was called. I went to the clubhouse. The first time I – it's like almost being in a playoff. And I was nervous and anxious, and I got back to my ball out fairway and i thought man i don't know how to stop this thing from flying It was so wet the grass looked like it had grown an inch in the in the rain delay and i knew it was just going to shoot off that grass and i tried to control it but i hit it off the back of the green and uh, larry mize hit it way right about 45 feet from the cup and fuzzy hit it 10 feet i said man this is fuzzy's tur- fuzzy's tournament but believe it or not I I chipped it down there made my par, and Larry made this 45-footer and fuzzy missed, so he beat us by a shot. But it was, like, so disappointing because I did not know how to stop the ball from shooting and flying off that fairway, that wet grass. Isn't that incredible? So I had to learn to do that through (laughs) my career. And that's the thing you learn from your mistakes when you play professional golf. All the mistakes you make, they make you a better player. I remember when I first went on tour, I couldn't hit the ball low. Growing up in North Carolina, we didn't play in any wind. We might play 20-mile-an-hour winds in March or something, but we didn't really play in a lot of wind. Well, heck, I went to Phoenix. It was blowing 35 miles an hour. I went to Dallas. It was blowing 50 miles an hour. I mean, it was blowing so hard. And we'd, we'd go to Phoenix, and there would be four golf courses, 150 players for one spot for each course. I mean, you had to really play some golf just to get in the tournament. And, uh, I didn't qualify until July of that year. I was, I, I didn't know how to play in the wind whatsoever. But over time, I learned to play in the wind. And you know, it's really funny because when you use a weak grip and you're trying to hit knockdown shots, the ball always curves. And uh, it's rare that you can hit it 200 yards like a bullet with it with a weak grip. The ball will always curve. It's just, it's impossible to do it any other way so I really had to learn the hard way and uh, I'm glad I did because at least I understand how to play now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One of the things TP talks about all the time on the show is Dr. Trial and Mr. Air. Is that how you learned how to play all of those different things how you learned to play in damp conditions how you learned to play in the wind or did you seek somebody out that was from that area or played in those kind of conditions frequently and say hey how do I do that?
1: Well, I'm leading Atlanta Classic like 1979, and I'm on the 71st hole. You know, we're playing Atlanta Country Club, and the higher you hit it, the better you play because you need to land the ball softly. Well, a 5 o'clock storm came through, and the wind was kicking up 25 to 30 miles an hour. I drove it right down the middle on the 71st hole. I'm dead into the wind, and so the next hole is straight downwind. I said, man... If I can hit this ball in the middle of that green, I'm gonna knock it on the green with a six iron on 18, and I'm a birdie to win by one shot over Calvin Peak, who had just shot
2: 61.
1: So I said, wow. well, I'm I'm only like 155, 60 yards or something like that. So well, I'm gonna take two clubs more, and I'm gonna crash it right in the middle of that green. I'm gonna crank it. And I'll never forget it. I hit it so good, I hit my line, and that ball hit, it rose higher and higher, and it came up short of the bunker, I make double bogey, and sure enough, I go to the next hole, I would knock the driver's six iron on the green, make birdie, and lose the shot, lose the tournament by shot, I'm thinking, man, I just didn't know how to do it, and I asked Jim Colbert, I said, Jim, you played right behind me, you were the last group, I said, how did you hit that shot? He said, Chip, I got a little closer to it. I got right up on top of it, put the ball right on my sternum, and I just punched it right up underneath the wind, and he knocked it right in the middle of the green. I, I had, I said, you need to show me how to do that. And uh see, back then, Jim was probably in his 40s. He would show me. And that was the beauty of the tour back then. I was playing in my 20s. I was probably 21 years old at the time. I'm playing with guys in their 40s, 45 years old. And uh boy, I learned a lot from them, but that that's how you learn. It's on-the-job training, man, and I'll tell you what, it's painful,
2: too, because I played
1: so good that week. <laughs> so I still no doubt. It, but if I could pop it down and hit it in the middle of that green, as I learned to do, you know, it, it would have been a lot easier. I remember, it's really funny you talk about that. I remember I was leading San Diego. I'm on the 18th fairway. I drove it right in the middle of the fairway, and I've got about 220 yards, 25 yards to the flag over that creek. Devlin Creek or whatever Devlin Lake. Bruce Devlin hit it in that lake a couple times. They named it after him. And I, I you know, I didn't know what to do. I'm on the down slope. I tried to take a free wood or an iron and cut it out of there, and catch part of the right side of the green. I hit it in the bunker. Didn't get it up and down. I missed I lost the tournament by shot. I get in and JC Snead says, Chip, what the heck are you doing? Why don't you just take that three wood and cut it all the way across the green? I said, J.C., I never even thought about doing something like that. I, I didn't know I had a shot <laughs> like that. But I never would ever tried it. He said, you "Yeah, just cut it across there. Cut it 25 yards. At least you'll get it on the green." So you know, you learn a lot from guys when I was growing up. They teach you. They'd say, "Man, Chip, that you you need to improve this," or, or they'll say, "You're the worst." Like teaching. He said, "Chip, you're the worst wish player I've ever seen. Get away, son. Put it back in your stance <laughs> and knock it down." He said, "At least you'll get it on the green." So I, you, some things like that you just don't forget. I remember it's kind of funny, you know. Like I remember Sam Snead. The first time I played with him was the Quad Cities Open, 1979. I hit my tee ball, and he comes up because it was kind of below the tee. And he says he cussed at me. He said, "Damn it, son, keep the ball in your stand." I said, "Mr. Snead, what do you mean?" He said, "We well, can't play from up there. How you gonna play when that ball's outside your stand?" And he shot his age that week. <laughs> So I mean, wow. that's pretty impressive. Go look him up. I mean, that you learn a lot from those old timers, man. I, I I love that when I played; it was the best time in in, in life because I played with all my legend friends, you know.
0: Chip, we'll get more into Kiowa Island and the nineteen ninety one Ryder Cup matches here in a minute, but I want to start by getting your thoughts on what you saw from Phil at the PGA Championship.
1: Well, you know what? He's really clearly. One of the great players in the last 40 years, easily, if not the history of the game. When you think about, you know, 45 wins, six majors, that is really impressive. There just aren't many people that can do that, especially during the Tiger Woods era. He would have been the number one player in the world for 15 years if Tiger hadn't been around. And and the thing that's so amazing about him, at 50 years old, I remember Raymond Floyd playing the Ryder Cup at 50 years old. And, man, it was hard for him to play 36 whole matches one after the other. So he sat out on a couple of matches just to make sure he had enough energy and strength. And he was a tough competitor, old Raymond was. And I loved Raymond because of that because he wasn't afraid of the devil, and he wasn't afraid to give it everything he's got. And I, I still remember him and the excitement he got from playing golf at 50 years old. I loved him, and uh, it it brought back a lot of memories because I was sitting next to Raymond Floyd in 1989, and uh, we're playing the Belfry in the Ryder Cup, and, you know, we're trying to get the Cup back from the Europeans. And our players are so long compared to the European team. And so, for instance, Curtis and myself, we were just average length, kind of like what the European players were. And we'd have it 280, 285 into the wind to the dogleg right at the bunker, and we'd hit two iron on the green. Well, Fred Couples hit nine iron. Payne Stewart cut the corner. Mark Kalkovecchi hit the corner. All our long hitters cut corner, but the wind was circling back and knocking the ball down. So I remember Raymond saying, you know, boys, it's my fault. I should have known that ball was getting knocked down by the wind. We should have taken our three woods out just play it straight towards the bunker and hit a, you know, a five-iron on the green. And he said, if I'd have been thinking, we'd have won this thing going away. But when Curtis hit that ball on that green to where we were not going to lose that match, you know, hit a two-iron, Raymond's eyes got so big, I thought, man, this is the most exciting thing I've ever seen. And Raymond, when I was 10 years old, came to Fayetteville, North Carolina, and that's what made me fall in love with the game. I followed him. He brought Jack Nicklaus in. I mean, imagine this, 1967, Jack Nicklaus had won seven times. Raymond had won the PGA at the time, but, you know, 1963. But but Nicklaus had won seven majors, and he wasn't in the PGA, five years of service for the PGA of America. Well, he came to Fayetteville, North Carolina, and I remember – just about every shot they hit on that golf course, Cypress Lakes raised to add on part of L B. And man, I just Raymond gave me thirty brand new Wilson Seth golf balls. Man, I prized those golf balls. And then I he gave <laughs> they both gave their signatures. I kept it on my bulletin board above my bed. I looked at it every night. I I just loved those guys. And then to actually have him as my captain, I was in heaven. And I'll never forget it. He came in, he said, Zinger and Beck, you guys have worked your way on this team. You've earned it. Play hard. We're putting you in. We're counting on you. And I tell you what, I knew right then and there we were going to be tough to beat. Cause you know what? He understood teamwork and he understood you're only as strong as your weakest link. And, uh, we were the rookies and, uh, man, I, I just, I, I could kiss Raymond Floyd if I saw him right now. I love the man.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. One of the things I want to get your, your perspective on, Chip, is I was doing some of the research looking back at that 91 team and, 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 uh, and that course. I, I read a golf digest article that was talking about the course and, and those matches. And Peter Costas is quoted as saying, at the time, the opinion was you could never hold a medal play tournament there, talking about Kiowa, because you could never finish. And Roger Malty said, I remember everyone asking, why are we going there? And then once we got there, everyone think, why are we here? And then one columnist wrote, y- you wonder why in the world the PG of America would take the Ryder Cup to an unfinished golf course in a mosquito-infested swampland designed by an architect that players universally despise. Are all those accurate depictions of what you guys thought heading into that?
1: I, I, you know what? I thought it was the hardest golf course I'd ever played. Especially because it, they raised the golf course. So you could see, you know, the wind, you could, the wind really had an effect. They raised it like four feet, the whole back nine, if not the whole golf course. And so the wind was, I've never played a golf course, I don't think before or since where on like 17, if you cut it a foot, it would go 30 yards. The wind was just so dense. I don't, it had not so much moisture in it. I couldn't understand it, but Cal couldn't finish because he never hit a draw in his life and the ball just moves left, right so much. I don't know how in the world. Uh, I mean, one of the greatest things I've ever seen in my life was when Hale Irwin, I'll never, I'll never forget it, Dave Stockton said the night before the last round, the last statement he said, and Hale, we want you to bring the ship home. And Hale said, I would consider it an honor. And you won't believe this, but back then this was all before all the equipment. Hale was in his 40s. And uh, every guy, even I could outdrive Hale like 30, 40 yards. Most guys could outdrive him because he wasn't a real long hitter. And, you know, if you look at Bernard Langer, he hit uh, five iron in, or four iron in on the last hole. Hale Irwin hit three wood in on the last hole. But the last five holes work against every weakness that Hale Irwin has in his game, in my opinion, because I don't know what I could have done if I couldn't close the face and hit a hook. That golf course was so hard. And that guy was the toughest competitor I've ever seen. And I've I've loved him ever since. Every time I see him, I said, Hale, you're still my American hero. You're the greatest player (laughs) of all time, man. You're your tenacity and your your gut is greater than anybody that's played the game, I said, because you know what? To hold that team together to the final putt was a miracle for a guy that hit it like Hale Irwin did at the time. Because, you, you know, he was known as a real straight hitter, and he played tough golf, his golf course really hard, you know. But still, when when a guy's out driving you 40 yards like Langer could, it's a tough match. And he took him to the finals. So, I mean, Hale Irwin, and he deserves everything he gets. That that guy is one of the great players of all time. I love the guy.
0: And, Chip, like you mentioned, you and Paul Hazinger, you guys get paired together in the Friday matches, both both matches, early and late in the afternoon, and you're going up against Seve and Jose Maria. And Seve and Paul weren't the best of friends after that 89 Ryder Cup, and I imagine it didn't get any better after 91. Talk about what was the gamesmanship yeah, like and what was the atmosphere like?
1: Well, it was so competitive. I'll never forget it because Seve had like a cough going. And literally and truly, I get on the the, uh, the ninth hole. It's a dog leg right to left. And I get right to the top of my swing and Seve goes, <clears <throat> he clears his throat. And I, I remember I was, so focused in on hitting a nice low curve of green because it was a very tough hole. And I eased up, and Zinger's walking off. He kept doing me to say something. I said, Zinger, act like nothing happened. I said, it it definitely slowed me up, but it's okay. I'm in play. I hit the ball good. We're all all right. We can still manage it. But if he keeps going, let's do something about it because that's ridiculous. Because you can clear that throat at the perfect time. And man, he did it a couple other times. And the next day, what was really cool about it, Raymond Floyd, we, we were talking about the team meeting. Well, the next day, Febby on the first tee clears his throat right on top of the swing of the player. And Raymond runs up to Teddy, Febby, we're not playing like this. That's not, if you do that, you're going to have to face me. This is not going to be pretty. And uh man, Sevy didn't do it for the rest of the day. <laughs> so it was really kind of it was a dog fight. But you know what? What I loved about Sevy and what I loved about these guys, they gave you everything they had. It was like Nick Faldo. Nick Faldo didn't care who you were or what you looked like, he would give you the time of day. And I loved it because you know what? He was a tough competitor. He was a fair competitor. And he gave it everything he's got. And you know what? Those are the best matches that I can remember. And I remember Zinger saying, Hey, hey, uh, Faldo, get away from my partner. Leave, leave, leave his line. Leave him. Get away from him. He said, Well, I'm just looking at it. <laughs> so they, you know, <laughs> Zinger after 87 when Faldo beat him, he killed not like Faldo, you know, so it's funny. They had a, they had a, 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 a wholesome, like rivalry. It was just a great time in golf. One of the great times of my life. I loved it so much. And Kewa, being close to Fayetteville, North Carolina, all my family was there. So my dad, all my brothers and sisters were there. We loved it. We had a great time.
0: Chip, you finished second at the 1989 Players' Championship. Actually slept on the third-round lead with guys like Tom Kite was one back, Couples and Crenshaw two back, and... And Jack Nicholas at 59 years old was still only four shots back on that, at that tournament as well. What was it like being a part of that event and that leaderboard? And
1: I remember I was a little bit nervous, you know, and that first fairway is pretty tight. And I hung it to the right in the right rough, which is probably if you're nervous, that's where you should be. The hole at least opens up a little bit. But man, everything I did that day, I was just, I was just uptight and I shot like 43. And I was actually, I, I felt like crying. I, I felt so terrible throwing the, the lead away and throwing my tournament away. And I remember looking at my wife at the time, and I thought, man, I, I, I literally felt, I remember tears in my eyes going down mine, you know, being out of it and all. And I, I said to myself at the turn, I said, well, this is the time that I need to actually just buckle down and pretend that, okay, everything went well. And I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hang in there and I'm a give this hole everything it's got, you know, and, uh, I'm a birdie this hole, see if I can get off to a good start. Sure enough, I had about a 10 footer on 10. And I just said, man, I need to, I need to roll this thing in. I need to really start feeling this putt going in. And uh, I rolled it right in. Oh man, it was like a complete relief. That I finally did something in the proper vein and it went well. So anyways, I shot 32 on that back nine. I actually even, I, there was the putt on 17. I hit it in there close about 10 feet and I, I just misplayed it, didn't make it. And then on 18, I hit it like 25 feet. And Tom Kite was on the front of the green. I mean, it's not a, not a difficult two putt, but you can definitely three putt because it's like up three tiers. Well, I made that putt. Tom rolled it up there. He still had to make about a 10 footer and I made that 30 footer for Birdie and Tom made his putt to beat me a shot. But I'll tell you what, that was a good comeback, but it was so disappointing. And yet I, uh, I always wanted to win that tournament because it was my favorite course of Pete dies, because it really differentiated between talent and there was, it, there were just so many interesting holes there and from, from day one, you know, we tried to improve the golf course. When we got there initially, you'd have putts for ten feet that would ber- that would break three different ways, <laughs> and people, the pros just can't stand, you know, triple breakers. Double breakers are great, but triple breakers will drive everybody crazy. So Pete and I <laughs> had to come in there and redo those greens and get rid of all the triple breakers. You know, because the thing that made Augusta great was the fact that if you looked at the apex of the green and you had a slope you know, that was going to the hole. You could see the, the apex. You could see your ball going up to the top and rolling straight down into the cup, kind of like Tiger's Chip from the back of 16. You can visualize it, see it, and, man, that's what makes golf really exciting. But when the, when a ball is moving, it looks like it's going in, then it moves the third time. Nobody's that good. So I got drilled <laughs> for many years. The players and Nicholas. And all, every, every tour player that knew anything about golf was there trying to make that a better golf course. And, uh, it became, I think, one of the best TPCs but for sure that we have. I, I think it's a great course now. So, yeah, that was a good feather in my cap, but I wish I could have won that. You know, I, I, I think I, the, the problem that you find out as you play golf and you play it for a career, sometimes you, my, I didn't feel like I choked, but what I did was I, I got too careful and tried too hard. And that's as big a choke as anything else in the world. That was the thing that was so amazing about a John Daly. You know, he won the uh, the the uh, the British Open at St. Andrews, and he said, Chip, my, my driver cracked on the ninth pole. I was hooking it 50 yards. So I went to 10. I hooked it 50 yards on the green. The more I hooked it, I, he said, I just left it in. He, because he figured, you know, if it hooks 50 yards, at least it's not going right. And the more you hook it there, the better shape you're in. So, sure enough, he he won that tournament with a cracked driver. I mean, can you imagine? Wow. It? I would have been freaking out. No. Something <laughs> no like that is bothering him. He was a funny guy because I'd say, John, great tournament there. You know, he, he played the shark shootout, and he, I think he won it. And uh, he said, Chip, I was hitting it so good. I went right to the bar, got him a shot, I got a shot of Jack Daniel's, drove the first green and never looked back. <laughs> I said, "Man, God, that's <laughs> awesome." <laughs> I wish I had more of that in me,
2: you know. I didn't have any of that.
1: But I I, you know, that was just an amazing uh the ability to just let it go and turn it loose. Incredible. That's just that's a that's a gift, you know. Yeah. So,
2: anyway, have one more before I let you day, go.
1: Man.
0: Yeah, it is. Let's talk on the upside. After finishing second seven times, you, you break through for your first win at the L.A. Open in 88. You win by four strokes. And I, I just curious, after all those close calls, what was it like for you to walk up 18 knowing you had a big lead and you were going to get your first win?
1: You know, the week before was probably the worst day and the worst time of my life. I was staying with a good friend of mine named Lenny, Lenny Clement from san diego and i literally i knew my marriage wasn't going to work out i I had two children and i just knew it was a a tough situation And, and i i thought to myself you know the only thing i can do this week to keep my sanity is to think one good thing after each shot and not worry and that was my goal i didn't care what happened and you know we had rain delays i went into the to the tents and started putting with all the kids, time to go. Let's go. I said, the hell with it. I don't care what happened. Because when you're down like that, sometimes you, you're at your best. It, it, it's hard to even imagine. But I I just, I, I got so sick and tired, I bogeyed eight, and Jay Haas was catching up, and I thought, you know what, I'm sick and tired of these guys always catching me and beating me. I said, there is not a way that I'm going to give this tournament up. And I remember I was on the ninth green, and I hit a shot that came back on the second tier, and I had to put up to the third tier. And I said, Dadgummit, I'm going to make this putt. I don't care what happens. I'm going to make this putt, and I'm not going to look back. I made that putt. And then I went to the 10th and I said, I'm going to drive it right on the front of that green. The green's right. The, the flag is right on the front. I'm going to take my driver. I'm going to put it right on that green. I drove it 10 feet short, chipped up, made my birdie. And then the next toe, I said, the heck with it, man, I'm going to knock this wedge in the cup. And I remember it hit, it came back and ended up about two feet from the cup. I tapped that in and I said, you know, this is it, boys. But so that was different. That was a different psychology. I was always playing afraid and always playing, you know, it, the game was so different because we'd come out of college completely demoralized about our game. I had so many friends quit. One of my best friends quit, Robert Donald. And it even took, took Curtis Strange like four years to get out there. And I mean, even when he's winning the U.S. Open, I mean, it was hard on him. And it, it just about killed him trying to win two U.S. Opens. And the kids today do it with ease. Because he didn't have the pressure of actually getting out there on tour. So I remember like in, uh, when Tiger Woods was 16, he's coming up the 18th hole at the L.A. Open. And I remember JC standing up there and a lot of these old timers. Let's see what this young kid can do now. And I said, gosh, it's amazing. This kid is 16. He's playing in a professional event. Think about how good that is. He missed the cut. But I, I was so amazed Tiger Woods was, was that good at 16. And and uh, But the thing that was so amazing it was the guys back then, well, let's bring him on. Let's see how good he is. Because see back then, you had to qualify to get on it, and there were so guys there were so many guys that could qualify they 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 they, they just uh cut their teeth on qualifying it was if it's hundred and fifty guys for one spot, no problem, man, you had to shoot sixty three to get in the tournament, they knew it they'd get it, but uh you learn a lot when uh you're not afraid of a whole lot when you're qualifying to get in event, so I remember like for yeah. me it was like playing in tournaments, I'd have to qualify. And then I'd have to play to to the Friday cut, you know, and Friday was the first day I'd take a break, get a breather, have a nice dinner, relax, not work out, and then I had to really play well so that I wouldn't have to qualify on monday and uh man, it was uh it was a grind, but it made you a lot tougher, but it also i think it it hurt us a lot because we'd lose our confidence, and we'd have to build it build ourselves back up. And, uh, I felt fortunate that I was able to do that. And I think a lot of that's why I finished, you know, I had like 20 some odd 2nd grace and that freedom and that, that goodness that allows you to just play with that, that effortless ease, you know. So it's a whole different ball game. It's the same on the champions tour today. Guys that are exempt for 20 years and the guys that are qualifying, you know, it, the guys can win 50 times because they don't have anybody competing against because everybody's qualifying. So it's a pretty easy game, you know. So anyway, yeah. it's just fascinating. Golf is golf is like that psychologically, you know.
0: Chip, before I let you go, remind our listeners how can they stay up to date with all the things you're doing, whether they're going online or it's on social media.
1: Well, you know what? I've actually been working with this company called Perfect Motion, and the most amazing thing about it, you don't have to t- you don't have to send any videos. You can take swings, just put, you, you just put your phone on the ground. It, it takes swings of you and I can know everything about your golf swing and, and you don't have to worry about ascending it. Cause once you take your swing, if I'm your coach, I get it immediately. And it's a, it's the most amazing technology. And I know that here it's slow getting, slow getting off the ground right now. And, uh, but I, I do think that we're starting to see some inroads into the, the teaching world, and we're getting a lot of usage globally. And I think once it gets into Asia, it's going to be, you know, Katie bar the door because it's going to be wide open. But yeah, you can, uh, you can keep up with me through, uh, 59com That's as easy as anything.
2: <laughs> well, Chip,
1: it's always so much Chip? fun when you're a part of the show. I hope you'll come back, come back soon and do it again. Yeah, you guys let me talk. I like I like being able to talk, you know, because it's a, uh, you know, I, I'm reminiscing a lot now. You know, I'm, I'm turning sixty five in September, and I'll be on Medicare. <laughs> and uh, so I'm I'm uh, I'm having a good time in my life, and uh, that's all I can tell you. I'm having a great time. So, and I'm glad I'm still playing you, too. I've, I've really enjoyed it. So enjoy. Well, Chip, I, I look forward.
2: For
1: me. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to next time already. I hope
2: that comes that comes around real soon. Call me anytime.
1: I appreciate you, Chip.
2: Take care. All the best to you and your family, my friend.
1: Yeah, good luck with your show. I love your show. Be good now.
2: Thank you, Chip.
0: Take Bye-bye. care. Bye bye. Thank you. That's a great tip back. Boy, I tell you what, I can sit back and listen to him tell stories all night long. That's The experiences he's had, the tournaments he's been involved with, the players that he's been around, all the great uh, champions of the past. Holy smokes. I just love Chip, and uh, the enthusiasm in his voice is uh, so contagious. Look forward to having him back on the show again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Michelle Holmes, I want to give a shout-out to a few more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Finn Cycles. Starting with our friends over at Finn Cycles. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing fin cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Fin for a course that has them near you. I also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Golf Pride. Did you know that Golf Pride lets you rep your favorite team while also using the number one grip in golf? Your team, your grip, MCC Hybrid Grips, the number one grip series worldwide. Features an exclusive brush cotton cord in the upper hand for all-weather performance, with premium rubber in the lower hand for added feel. The new MCC Team Series is available in a variety of new color combinations, so you can rip your favorite team out on the course. Available in standard and midsize, check it out online by going to golfpride.com. And, folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. Okay, now back and next on the tee with me is Michelle Holmes. Let me remind you about Michelle's background. She's from Mayo, Ireland, which is on the Central West Coast. Started playing golf at the age of 10. At St. Mary's Secondary School, she finished first in the All-Ireland Schools Singles and second in the All-Ireland Schools Doubles Matches. She won two All-Ireland titles and seven Connacht Provincial Under-18 Championships. She was selected to play for both her Provincial and the Ireland All-Under-18 teams. She got a scholarship to play her college golf here in the States at Campbell University. In the 2001-2002 season, she was named to the Atlantic Sun All-Freshman Team. In the 2003-2004 year, she earned a spot on the Atlantic Sun All-Academic Team and finished tied for 16th at the Atlantic Sun Championship. She helped the Lady Camels win the Atlantic Sun title by 26 strokes. She's now an LPGA teaching professional and a master U.S. kids instructor and perhaps the best one on the planet. And I'm thrilled to have her back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Michelle, thanks for coming back on the show.
3: For having me. I had never heard Chip speak before. I could listen to him all night.
0: Yeah, with you. He is he is endlessly fascinating and has so many wonderful stories. Boy, I could listen to that guy tell stories all night as well.
2: <laughs> yes, it was, so, Michelle, i got to wish story. you a
0: happy Women's Golf Day. I know, uh, I know. It, It's uh, it's been an involved day for you, I'm sure, and uh, all the... Young girls that you are doing such a great job bringing into the game. Talk about what Women's Golf Day means to you.
3: Um, I think it's a fantastic thing that they started. I'm not sure when they started the initiative, but I absolutely love it. I actually haven't got too involved as far as um, getting involved on the ladies' side of things. But, of course, I'm always trying to grow. Um, Girls golf and yeah, actually just finished up a day of lessons. And I think I had, let me see, I had nine lessons today and I think six of them were female. And actually, when I look at my program as a whole, and um, one thing I'm very, very proud of is our program. We see over 500 kids through the door a year and over, we have over 60% girls in our program. So women's golf day means a lot to me.
0: Michelle, are we doing enough to bring more women into the game? Or are there still things that you, you recognize that we could be doing a better job of?
3: For, you know, the one thing I really think about when I think about getting ladies into the game, and again, I'm teaching kids 100% now, but um, when I think back to my days um, teaching, you know, just your, your lady who's coming in for golf lessons, you know, at the golf club. And the one thing I think we're not doing enough of still is giving these ladies opportunities to get out and play in a comfortable environment. And I think we're still seeing too many ladies get stuck learning the game. Um, You know, they get stuck taking their regular driving range lessons, but not having enough opportunities to get out and play the game. like. I'm even guilty of it myself. I can't tell you how many ladies I talk back in the day, and I'd see them maybe a couple of years later, or six months later, or whatever, and I'd say, oh, "How's it going?" And they'd be like, "Oh, my, I love my lessons, but I'm not really playing. I'm too—I I don't know what to do now. I'm too scared to get out in the golf course." And I think we're still seeing a little bit of that. So I, I, I think we're moving in the right direction, and I think you know golfers like myself are doing the right thing, and um, we can just keep doing more and more.
0: Michelle, talking about uh, how dedicated you are to young kids playing the game, I, I love the videos you post of those kids having fun and celebrating each other's great shots or if they make a putt, that sort of thing. Talk about working with kids and seeing the joy in their eyes and their reactions when they hit a good shot.
3: Yeah, well, I have to say I have the best job in the world. I've never woken up and thought, oh, I've got to go to work today. So I, see, I feel so, so blessed to be involved in in um, so many kids' journeys. And people always ask me, you know, why why do you teach all kids? And, you know, I definitely prefer teaching kids because there's no fear. There is that joy in it. You know, there's no overanalyzing things. So, yeah, it is fun. It's fun to see them, you know, when, you know, let's say when they, they're they having trouble at the start of the game and then they hit that one shot uh, or make that one pot and just see that excitement. It's uh, it's, it's really
0: cool. And you have a wonderful video pinned to your Twitter account of of three kids. One young girl appears to make a really good putt, and the other two help her celebrate. Are are those natural reactions, or are those things that you encourage the kids to do because you want to see them, you know, helping each other, encouraging each other, having a good time with each other, and not just focused on their own golf game? Yeah, I
3: mean we're always encouraging good sportsmanship and to you know, encourage your other players and cheer for them and so on. Um, and I do catch so many wonderful um, little snippets. What I do in my lessons, I'll just, I'll always have my iPhone there and I'll just lay it down. They forget it's even recording. And then at the end of the night, I'll kind of go back and I'll remember where the cute moments happened and then I'll post them from there. Um, but yeah, we're always encouraging that. And, um, and you know, we're big encouragers and our program. Of getting our kids out competing young too, and um, so we're trying to get you know we're, we're trying to create those. And this is how am I was going to say this? We're trying to create, and um, I guess good sportsmanship early.
0: And Michelle, one of the things both you and and Hal Sutton do a great job of on Twitter is cautioning we as parents about our reactions when our kids hit a poor yeah. shot or maybe they played poorly that day. You recently posted that the best thing that we can do as parents or as caddies for our kids is give them the freedom to make mistakes and then encourage them to try again, which is hard for us because many times as parents we're living and dying on their shots. How can we do a better job of supporting our junior players?
3: Well, what I always say to parents, you know, it's in golf we have a great parents have a great opportunity to be out there with their kids, you know, on so many other sports, parents are left on the sidelines. So we're so lucky in golf. So I always tell parents, you know, you are 50% of the team. If you decide to caddy for your child, you're now 50% of the team, especially if it's a young child. And I always say to them, hey, if me and you were playing a double tennis match together and I wasn't playing very well, what would you do? You would try and bring your A game. So that's what I always try and tell them is when they're caddying for their child, On the days when the child doesn't have their A game, that's when they have to have their A caddy game. And so often we see it happen, you know, differently. I mean, it's very easy to be a good caddy on the days things go well, but it's not easy to be a good caddy on the days and things aren't going so well. But again, just reminding parents, you know, these young kids don't have, really don't have a mental game. And so whatever we are saying them to, as, whatever we are saying to them as adults, that becomes their mental game. And so we've got to choose those, those words uh, very wisely.
0: And Michelle, you growing up in Ireland, I'm guessing playing in the rain was just part of everyday life <laughs> as a, as a junior golfer. And when kids here scoff at the thought of, playing in rainy conditions, <laughs> or if it's drizzling a little bit. Do you laugh at them?
3: I laugh at them. I actually run, and um, as I said earlier, I run I run maybe 20 golf tournaments a year for U.S. Kids Golf, and I run, maybe run another 30 tournaments a year for Virginia State Golf Association. But sometimes we have bad weather days playing in my tournaments for the first time or texting saying, is the event going ahead? And all the people who have been with me for years are laughing at this because they know if it's playable at all we are playing. Um, so I think no, I think you know, obviously that's kinda of a little bit about my, my background, but I think it's just important that we do um, teach these kids to play in all conditions. That's the beauty of our sport, right? It's an outdoor sport.
0: Yes. Absolutely. And and you know, speaking of you know conditions, how is playing the game here different from playing the game back home in Ireland?
3: Well, the biggest game changer for me, I guess, when I came to play college golf, I kind of had to forget about my five-arm bump and run and uh, learn how to play some flop shots. So that was uh, quite a change when I, um, quite a change when I came to to college. Um, But yeah, I mean, I grew up playing complete links golf. um, So of course those conditions are are quite tough. Um, I found American golf easier in a way when I moved here because I felt like you could just fire everything at the pin. There wasn't as much thinking to be done on the golf course over here. Um, and and now when I go back and play links Lynx Golf, I'm frustrated with it and I almost feel like there's a little bit of luck involved in Lynx Golf too, which which there definitely is.
0: And when you're working with your junior golfers, here's something I think a lot of parents of uh, teenagers and, and uh, kids in their 20s, I think we get frustrated with how do you get them to be immersed in the game, put their phones down long enough to focus on learning the game, and then keep their phones down to go play 18 holes of golf?
3: I know. That is a tough one. I actually had a situation the other day with a kid who's always on her iPhone, and I was in a lesson with her, and she was coming across the ball, and we were working on this. And I said, hey, give me that iPhone there. And I actually put it down in front and left of her ball, and I said, now go ahead and hit your shot. And the look of fear in her <laughs> eyes. <laughs> so I let her get up, and I let her think about it for a second, and then I said, "Actually, we're not going to do that. Stop swinging across the line, please." <laughs> but no, it is tough. <laughs> <so, then>. uh, <laughs> they are yeah. completely engulfed in their uh, in their in their phones these days. That's for sure. But going back, and
2: Michelle, for those, who...
3: We'll...
2: I'm, I'm sorry. What was that?
3: Going back to kids being prepared, you know, prepared for tournaments and stuff. You know, the one thing I always try and ingrain in my kids is all we can do as golfers is show up prepared. You know, some days the golf gods are going to be against us. So when, when my kids come off, come back from a tournament, whether they've won or whether they've had a porch showing, the only thing I ever say to them is, did you go to that golf tournament prepared? That's the only question I ever ask them. And I think as long as you as a competitor know that you short of prepares, that's all you can really take care of. The golf gods, sometimes are gonna be with you and sometimes they're gonna be against you.
0: Michelle, for the folks that weren't with us the last time you came on the show, do you mind resharing the story? How does a girl from the west coast of Ireland end up coming over here to play her college golf at Campbell University in North Carolina?
3: So, yeah, I grew up playing junior golf in Ireland and started at age 10 and had a pretty successful um, junior career and played, um, you know, for my club and my province and I played for Ireland. And then, um, you know, back then it was interesting because not many Irish girls were coming over to the States. It just wasn't a thing at the time. And there was maybe three girls who had gone before me. and But there was a girl, uh, her name was Ada Burke, and she went to Campbell University And I guess I just started thinking about maybe I want to go to America, do something different. And, and, you know, back then, the recruiting was much easier, too, as far as, you know, being in communication with the coaches. Because she was a huge help for me. And she put me in contact with the coach and obviously had a decent resume. And before you knew it, I was on the plane to North Carolina with two suitcases. One was full of clothes. One was full of picture frames. And, you know, found my way. When I think back, like, you know, I was seventeen, eighteen at the time, and there was no such thing as recruiting My parents didn't even come with me. They just put me on an airplane, and off I went, and my coach picked me off the other side. But, like, I had no idea where I was going. I just thought I was going to New York City. I just thought everywhere in America was, like, New York City. That's all I'd ever seen on TV. So when I landed in the boondocks of North Carolina, I can't tell you the shock I got. I thought I had like landed on, like, a house in the prairie. <laughs> it was quite a close job. And then to find out that Campbell University is also a dry county, that was a second job for me.
2: <laughs> oh. Yeah, no good. No good for a college student.
3: <laughs> well, no, and definitely no good for an Irish person. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's good.
3: So, um... So, yeah, but there was the best. I, I actually didn't think I would last four years initially at Campbell University, such a small university in North Carolina. You know, once I realized where I was, I didn't think I would last four years, but I I did do the four years. and It was the best four years of my life. And I uh, had a wonderful experience playing college golf with recommenders to anybody.
0: Michelle, before I let you go, let our listeners know for the parents out there that, that want to get what I consider to be the best U.S. kids coach on the planet. How can they stay up to date with you, get in touch with you, get their kids enrolled in in a in a uh, class or you know instruction from you because you're absolutely outstanding. Oh,
3: thank you, thank you very much. And um, I am on Twitter, it's M Holmes Golf, and I'm on Instagram, Michelle Holmes Golf, and Facebook, Michelle Holmes School of Golf. So if any, if any. Parents of junior golfers out there have any questions, and I will be glad to chat with them.
0: Michelle, you're absolutely wonderful. Your, your enthusiasm, your positivity, and the great work that you do with the kids, bringing them and getting them involved in the game of golf, is second to none. I can't thank you enough for coming back and being a part of tonight's show. You're, a, like I said, you're a treasure.
3: All right, for having me. Always nice chatting with you.
0: Take bye care, bye. Michelle. All the best to you and your family. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's the great Michelle Holmes, folks, and uh, I'm, I'm sincere. You've got to follow her and you've got to check her out online and on social media. Just She's such a joy to be around and the way that she uh, interacts with the kids and gets them excited about the game of golf and rallying around each other and, and praising each other and being excited for each other when uh, one of them makes a, a, a putt or a great shot. It's a, it's just absolutely, it warms your heart watching the videos that she puts out there. So looking forward to catching up with Michelle again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Bill Berg, and I want to give a shout out to our friends over at two under two under men's performance briefs are the official underwear of the 2021 U S Ryder cup team, the captain and all vice captains. They are worn by more than 30 players on the PGA and champions tour they are also worn by over 70 NCAA Division I colleges and 17 NFL teams. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort, fit, and performance, from the golf course to the boardroom to the bedroom. Find these 200 performance men's briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide, All Shield Sports Stores, PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Galaxy, and other fine retailers near you. Go online to twounder.com. That's the number two, U-N-D-R.com. Two Under Performance in your pants. Use code ONTHET20 for a 20% discount at checkouts. Not valid on items already on sale or NCAA license briefs. Now next on the tee with me, and making his ninth appearance on the show, is Bill Bergen. Bill played his college golf at Auburn University from 1978 to 1981. He was named first-team All-SEC every year, and he helped Auburn win the 1981 SEC Championship. His 65 during the 1979 Pan American Tournament still ranks as one of the lowest 18-hole scores in Auburn golf history. He's played in over 250 professional tournaments worldwide, including three U.S. Opens, two Open Championships, and over 50 PGA Tour events. He's now one of the top golf course designers on the planet. He started his own design business, Bergen Golf Designs, and he has designed or renovated courses all over the world. Bill has been involved in well over 70 course design projects. In 2017, he was named one of the top 10 most innovative people in golf. You can see his work by going online to his website, bergengolf.com. And I'm very excited he is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Bill, thanks for coming back on the show.
1: Hey, Chris, great to be with you again, and what a nice lineup you've had tonight.
0: Yes, very excited. You talk about an all-star studded lineup, and here you are batting cleanup. Doesn't get better than that, though.
1: Uh, I've got a good Chip uh, Beck story. So when I was a a senior at Auburn, I qualified for the U.S. Open at Ballstraw, and I played my practice rounds with, with Chip Beck and Tim Simpson and uh, some old past champion named Gene Littler. And uh, it was quite an experience, and <laughs> Chip, yeah, as you know, there's not many better and nicer guys at Chip Beck. So uh he uh treated me really well when I was a young player and I appreciate it always.
0: Bill you've you've got a whole bunch of projects going on. Catch us up. What are some of the things that you're working on now or, or have coming up right around the corner.
1: Yeah, so we are uh just returning from Santa Rosa Golf and Beach Club and if you've seen any of the uh pictures of that course Everything underneath the ground is basically sugar white sand like you see at the beach in Santa Rosa Beach and Destin and Rosemary Beach and that whole 38 uh, along the Gulf Coast. And you talk about an spectacular medium to work with, and we've taken a golf course that was literally overgrown with trees, had a lot of water hazards, and, and just had this, this Closed in feel where the breezes didn't blow and it was hot and kind of muggy. And we've opened this thing up and exposed all this white sand creating dunes. We've literally recreated dunes that you would see at the beach and we've put them on the golf course, framing holes, separating holes. Uh, it's just, a, it's just incredible. It's one of the most fun pieces of property that I've uh, been able to work with. And I work, you know, and I work a lot in the mountains. And I love mountain golf, and have been really fortunate to work in some incredible environments. But I'll have to tell you, this sand moves really easily, <laughs> and and we don't have to move any rock or any of that stuff. So it's uh, it's quite a treat.
0: And Bill, speaking of your uh, affinity for mountain golf, I hear there is uh, going to be a second eighteen up at Macklemore. What's going on there?
1: Well. We are uh we are investigating some options and we have um an incredible site that um we may be working with incredible in fact it, it could make the um it could make the existing 18th hole which was voted the best new hole ATP hole in America built in the last 20 years uh it will rival that with numerous holes like that
2: wow so when do
0: you anticipate kicking off that project?
1: Well, we haven't announced it quite yet, but you know the guys up there. Uh, so we're uh, yep. we're still working on planning, but uh, if everything goes well, we'll probably be uh, doing a little bit of uh, clearing and exposing some of the incredible views this fall.
0: Is that going to be a, a Bergen original, or are you going to have Reese Jones co-design with you?
1: I'll be working with Reese and uh, Steve Weiser and so we'll
0: keep our team together. You may be aware my my buddies and I are going up there next week for our annual golf trip. It's going to be my first first time getting a look at the property and being there at Maclamore. I couldn't be more excited or more anxious to play the golf course and the Karen by the way <laughs> uh, to kind of warm up or cool down. Looking looking forward to all of that. So I ne- I need a little insider information, Bill. My buddies are probably not listening tonight, so I need to get a little something that, uh, you know, where where should I not hit? Besides not hitting it left on 18, where are some things that I need to be aware of that might give me a little extra insider information?
1: Well, first, leave plenty of time to enjoy the cairn, and it's a, a six-hole short course with holes ranging from about 45 to 100 yards. It's strips above our new 18th hole on the old 18th hole fairway, right below the clubhouse. So it's the perfect place to grab a beer or a glass of wine or whatever you,
2: you enjoy drinking.
1: Grab two clubs and a golf ball and get out there with your buddies and uh doing a little needling, uh give them, giving everybody a little bit of a hard time and um kind of putting your money where your mouth is on that little course because it is <laughs> so much fun. Um and one of my friends just was up there last week, Rob Williams and he had brought his son and his son's girlfriend up there, and she flew one in the hole on, on one of the holes on the short course.
2: Wow. So
1: eight on the short course. Wow. So, uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a, it's a great spot. So You, you want to make sure that you have time to play that. And then on the golf course itself, you know, the, the second hole is just a brute, but it's so beautiful. And it, it, it's just a great hole, but it's a, You know, drive down to the bottom of the hill. Depending on what If you're playing, you know, a long enough piece, it's certainly a driver. But if you're up front a little bit, you might lay it lay it back a little. But the second shot's all over this leg to a an angled green, and it's just it's just the key hole on the on the front nine. But the cool thing that's a very difficult hole. But the great thing about Macklemore is there are tons of birdie opportunities, and there are tons of bogey potential bogeys. So don't be discouraged. Because uh, whatever is around the next corner is a new opportunity to to either be greatly challenged or to really be successful. It is not an 18 par type of golf course. Even with the great Nick Faldo, would not be making 18 pars out there. He would be he would be making some birdies and he'd be making a few bogeys as well.
0: And Bill, on the Macklemore website, the tagline is "Live life above the clouds." Talk about the elevation of the course because I've seen pictures where that eighteenth hole is literally above the clouds.
1: Yeah, so we kinda average out around two thousand feet above sea level, which is, is phenomenal. It puts us in a great environment. It's warm enough to grow, you know, really good fairway grass and it's cool enough to have fantastic bent grass greens. And and Ryan Emerson, our our golf course superintendent, keeps the greens in incredible condition. They were aerated at least a month ago, so they should be spectacular for your visit. So you know it's going to be perfect. The conditions will be fantastic for you. Um, the 18th hole parallels the ridge on Lookout Mountain, and it plays alongside of it. And as you probably know, the, the left side of the green drops off about 1,200 feet to the valley below. So it's just kind of awe inspiring. I know you've seen pictures, uh, and but what I will tell you is the scale in person is much better than the pictures. And we've got beautiful photography from both Dave Sansom and Evan Schiller, and they've done an incredible job of capturing the golf course. And even when you go in the clubhouse, you'll see all 18 holes with these beautiful professional photographs, uh, which make it look fantastic. But when you get to the 18th, it's just bigger. There's just – it's more, you know, awesome is as a, as a, a, an overused word. but it, Kind of awesome. It's just one of those places where you go and just say, "Wow."
0: So, is the elevation up there enough to make the ball travel further, or is it, is it really play yeah, similarly half to
1: half a club? Oh. Yeah, All
0: right. half
1: that's a club.
2: good
0: to know.
1: Right, so not a lot, but but a little bit. Okay, so that's a good inside inside piece of information. You'll hit your irons just slightly longer than normal. You'll hit your driver a little bit longer, and you've got some, you know, you've got some downhill tee shots where you. You can really launch it. The sixth hole is sort of infamous. It's a par five that drops about, oh, I don't know, maybe 150 feet from the landing, from the fairway landing area to the second shot landing area in the green. So it's a big drop off. And what you want to do on that tee shot is keep it left. Hit it down the left side. It has a co fairway with the ninth hole, so you almost cannot go too far left. And it, over on the left side, you get a great view of the green in and the, and the second shot. So it should ball left off the 16.
0: Left on six, right on 18. Got that. Broke <laughs> there you go. That's
1: right. Otherwise, it's very straightforward.
0: <laughs> Bill, you and I sort of semi-joke about there needing to be a Bergen Trail through the northwest part of Georgia and maybe eastern Tennessee, similar to the Robert Trent Jones Trail, because now that – Life is kind of getting back to normal. I'm really dying to get a big taste of your work. What are the courses in and around this area, maybe even around the country for that matter, where we can go play the Bergen courses?
1: Well, there's a couple of cool triangles. So um, the triangle in, in northwest Georgia would, would consist of McLemore, and then my newest opening last year, which was Dalton, Dalton Country Club, and Dalton is where I won the nineteen eighty one Georgia Amateur and we have put a beautiful golf course on that property. Uh incredibly good. Uh it's just brand new. So it it just opened up in the late fall. Uh so it's a baby, but it's it's quite a uh, terrific golf course. And they're actually playing the first competition on it uh next week. The North Georgia Invitational, which is a Chattanooga area tournament, is being held at Dalton. And then the anchor of all three might be Chad and the Dolphin Country Club, which is an old Donald Ross that I redid about fifteen sixteen years ago and so those three courses would be an incredible trip, and you're only you know maximum forty five minutes apart uh if you stay you know stay in the central area in Chattanooga area, so that's a or even stay up at Macklemore up on property and then you can go to the other courses and then we're kind of um we're kind of I wouldn't say we're dominating, but we are very prolific in the Northeast Georgia, Western Carolina mountains, We're um, just finishing Highland Falls, which has the most unique par three you'll ever see. It's 130-yard par three with a 25 to 100 to 3,000 square foot little tiny green with a massive waterfall right behind it and just to the left of the hole. And it is one of the most scenic places you'll ever go. You walk up to that green and even if you're not playing, you want to go up there and just, feel the power of the waterfall right next to the hole. But we have, we have, wild, we have Wildcat Cliffs, which, is, which touches the area. We have Highlands Falls, and we're now working on Masterfinding Colisegea, which is an Arnold Palmer golf course in the same area. So those three properties actually all touch each other. They, they, they put up against each other. So I've got three golf courses right there and along with Sky Valley and Sapphire Valley. So we've got five golf courses, all within about 45 minutes in the Western Carolina Mountains.
0: Bill, I want to switch gears and talk a little bit more about your playing career. And you mentioned your time uh, playing up at Baltus Roll. Uh, So leading up to that, right, you you play at Bethesda Country Club in order to qualify to play in that open at Baltus Roll. You shoot a brilliant opening round, 68. You're competing against guys to qualify in that tournament, guys like Hal Sutton, Dave Stockton, Lee Elder, Bob Gilder, Morris Satowski, Mike Reed. I mean, a cast of thousand of, uh, of great players. Talk about what that experience was like for you.
1: So you did a deep dive there to get that information. Um, I actually played with Stockton, and that was actually for the 82 U.S. Open at Pebble, but it was at Bethesda Country Club. And I played with Dave Stockton, 36 holes in one day, and you talk about another gentleman. He he was. We both made it,
2: and he he was rooting
1: as hard for me to make it as he was. And I was, you know, I was a first year pro that year, but when I qualified for strong I actually qualified at the Atlanta Athletic Club in in Georgia, and that was 36 holes on two really hard golf courses, and I ended up being in a playoff with 11 guys, Chris, for 10 spots. Now you'd think how could you miss, right? How can you miss that playoff? And if you know the athletic club, the first hole at that time I will I will put it this way, in the in the morning round, I hit driver in the fairway and a 3 iron on the green. So it's a long par 4. And so we got one of the tougher holes on the golf course as a playoff hole. In the playoff, you know, again, I'm 21 years old and I'm at Auburn and I I am jacks going into that playoff. I am pumped and I'm in the first group. And I pound a driver out there and hit 6-iron into the middle of the green. So three clubs different, all because of adrenaline. Hit it in the middle of the green and I make par and I'm like, I'm in. I'm in the U.S. Open. I made par. Because somebody out of 11 guys is going to bogey this hole. Well, let me tell you, all my playing partners made par. Okay? And you know we were in the first group. So we stepped behind the first stream. And the second group comes through and they all make par. And now I'm going, uh oh. And there were only out of eleven players on this very, very difficult first hole at the Athletic Club Highland sports, there were two bogeys. So two guys went on to play for one spot. But there were nine pars. No birdie, nine pars. And you talk about um you know, one of those things where you bet the house that you're in the US open, but it got a lot closer than any of us any of us who made par. Uh, wanted it to get.
0: And Bill, fast-forwarding a few years, you finished uh, 14th at the Open Championship 1984. That year was played at St. Andrews. That's the year Seve, uh won. But you shot a third round, 66, which was tied with Tom Watson and Sam Torrance for the round of the day. Talk about that event and that great third round.
1: Yeah, so the A4 you know, Open is at St. Andrews. And I, um, traveled that year a good bit with a friend named Charlie Bowling who won the South African Open and played on the PGA Tour. And, um, and he goes, man, you ought to go try to qualify for the, for the British Open, which we called it at the time. And even Tom Watson who won it five times calls it that. But he said, you should try to go qualify for that. And so I was playing on a tour called the TPS Tour, which was actually the forerunner to the web.com. Corn Ferry Tour. It was the very first sort of second tour run by the PGA Tour. And I I thought if I was playing well and made some money, I'd I'd go qualify at St. Andrews. So I I was fortunate to finish second in an event right before I needed to go over to St. Andrews. So I had money and um, decided to go over and had to qualify at a place called London Link. And I was playing well. I'd finished second the week before and I go over in the qualifier and I see 71-65 and finish second in the qualifier. So I'm, you know, I was, I was obviously playing well and the qualifiers on a Sunday and a Monday of the tournament week. And so, um, I, I'm straight into the, into the open championship with only two practice rounds because I didn't get to play on Monday because I was qualifying on Monday. And so, you know, all of a sudden you're playing the old course and I'll tell you what, the emotions and feelings and golf. Are sometimes hard to predict, but I stood on the first tee in a practice round with friends of mine, so I wasn't playing with anybody that made me nervous or anything like that. I'm standing on the first tee on Tuesday morning, playing at the old course, and I think I was the most nervous I've ever been playing golf on one shot. I just had this adrenaline rush that I can't really quite explain, but I felt just rubbery and, and loose, and like I had no club, and and it was really an interesting experience. I would imagine keying it up at Augusta might be similar uh but that was that was quite an experience but i I made the cut on the nose and I played with nick faldo on on um on the final round but the third round I played with a Scottish guy and I ended up shooting 66, six, which as you mentioned, was the low round of the of the day but also of the tournament. There were four sixty six uh shot that week. And I had one of them. So, you know, really proud of that. It remains one of my more important, uh, playing accomplishments. And the final day I played with Nick Faldo. And the interesting thing there was, um, on Saturday, I shot 33-33 for 66. And, six, and then on Sunday, I shot 33 on the front nine. And I went from the cut line to fifth place in just 27 holes. Um, that nine under wow. over 27 holes was, was really, you know, uh, it's the best golf anybody played over 20. 20- you know, over that period. Um, So that was a moment, uh, a moment that I'll never forget.
0: Phil, coming out of the PGA Championship played at Keahua Island, which was a Pete Dye-designed golf course, and one of the things I read is that Pete likes to trick your eyes about what you think you're seeing about distances on shots. Plus, he doesn't always point the tees in the direction that you need to hit it, which is something I've seen other designers do as well. Do you, do you like those things? Is that a, a, an attempt to make us think our way around the course more, strategize more, and not just sort of just go along our merry way and really make us stay focused? Is it a, an attempt to trick us? Talk about why Pete does that and your thoughts about that kind of thing in course design.
1: Yeah, so I was able to play a number of Pete Dye golf courses um, and some of the more noteworthy ones. I, I went to tour school at PPC Sawgrass when it first opened up. It was unplayable. I will tell you that. It was impossible, except for Donnie Hammond. But otherwise, it was impossible. Um, So I played there when it first opened. I played tour school at PGA West, which was uh, obviously another renowned golf course. And then uh, some of my favorites, the honors course up in Chattanooga, is a phenomenal dive course. And then out in Oklahoma, we used to go out for the Oklahoma Open and stay with Bob Flay and play in the tournament out there at Oak Tree. And that's a terrific place as well. And I've played a number of other die golf courses from Harvard town and you know, just and I really like his golf course. So I like his work. Um, you know, he's unique, uh, certainly in the way he does things. But one of the things I will tell you that he really does, he makes the tee shots look way harder than they are and there's more room out there than it looks. So he makes you uncomfortable, but yet I feel like driving the ball on a die course is actually that difficult. There's there's always more room than it looks. And so um driving the ball, you know, is it, really it's intimidating to the eye, but if you trust yourself you're gonna be, you're gonna be successful. But around the green, so so compared to a lot of the modern designers, uh, you know, Fazio or Gil Hands or, or something like that, those tiny green, much smaller green, um, and much more angular around the green complex. So I would say his forces are easier to drive the ball maybe than average and much harder around the green with a smaller target to play to. And then lots of variety as far as elevation, tiny bunkers, big bunkers, deep bunkers, uh, volcano bunkers, all kinds of crazy things around the green. Certainly very unique. And so I I love Guy as an architect. I don't particularly model my work after him, although I've been compared with bunkers. some of my bunkers, I would say, prepare to dive fairly well, um, and I certainly take that as a compliment. But I, I think he's a, um, you know, Hall of Fame architect. I think he, his work on really nondescript bad properties is amazing. I mean, he takes, you know, something from and, and makes something incredible from nothing, and he probably does that as well as anybody.
0: Phil, at the top of the show, our mutual good friend Tom Patry uh, joined me and. In- and I know that, uh, you're going to be doing some work down at his winter home course at Crown Colony Country Club in Fort Myers, Florida. Um, talk about what, uh, that project's going to be all about.
1: Well, how about that? That's a, a really fun, um, thing. And I have to thank Tom Patrick for, uh, recommending me and for introducing, introducing me to those guys. And, uh, you know, really fantastic for, uh, Tom and I will be able to get some time together. I'm sure we'll have some insights. For me, on, on on give me a little advice on the golf course, but we have just started master planning that golf course. So we are in the process of developing a long term plan for its future. My son Matt was down a few weeks ago and with his drone and, and shot um, incredibly good topo and aerial photography of the golf course. And so we have a great bas- uh, base map information and we're really looking forward to. Um, to our work down there, and it's a it's a beautiful you know South Florida golf course with past Palom fairways, past Palom green, and um, it's a it's a really nice piece of property to work with. Uh, it will be one that that will uh, suit our style of work very well.
0: Bill, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great projects you're working on and keep track of things, whether it's on your website or it's over social media.
1: Absolutely. So the website's bergengolf.com, but we are more active on social media just because it's so easy to, uh, interact on a, you know, on a daily basis, uh, with Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, my Facebook, you know, you can do Bergen Golf designs or Bill Bergen. The others are Bergen Golf. Just Google Bergen Golf and you'll find them. But we, we almost post daily, uh, with different things that are going on with us and we're working on projects all over the Southeast. And uh, we seem to be on the road every day and um, on a different golf course every day.
0: Well, Bill, it's always a thrill to get to spend some time with you. I learn something every single time you're a part of the show. I can't thank you enough for being generous with your time and coming back tonight. I hope we get the pleasure of having you back on the show again soon.
1: Thanks, Chris, and have a blast at Macklemore. I look forward to talking with you after it's over, and you can give me the good, bad, and ugly. And I uh, hope you guys have a blast up there. It is an incredible place. It's got its own culture and its own feel uh It is a wonderful place and i I tell you what every time I'm up there, I am very appreciative of that property and Dwayne Horton and the owners and the opportunity to work up there and and we're gonna we're gonna uh make some more special uh special spots up there for those guys.
0: I can't tell you how excited I am to be there and see it in person, bill. I will be glad to follow up with you, and I'm sure I'll tell you what a great time we had and uh, how excited we are to go back.
1: Very good. Thanks, Chris. It's always good to be with you.
0: Thanks, Bill. Take care. Stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family. That's a great Bill Bergen. And, uh, folks, you want to talk about one of the uh, guys that is destined to be in the Golf Designers Hall of Fame? It's Bill Bergen. His uh, his courses are beautiful. The vistas are outstanding. And uh, the course conditions, uh, obviously, he turns it over to the superintendent, who also do a great job. But, uh, boy, Bill's uh, stuff is absolutely outstanding. you got to follow him. Bergen Golf, go to bergengolf.com to check it out online. But give him a follow on Instagram and Twitter. Like he says, he posts stuff almost every single day about pictures for the before and the after and how things are uh, progressing. And they're just beautiful. He needs to come out with a calendar. I keep telling Bill every year. You need to come out with a calendar, Bill, because his golf uh, golf course designs are, are just that beautiful. Folks, before I close up shop tonight, I want to let you know that tickets are on sale now for the Tour Championship here in Atlanta at East Lake Golf Club. The tournament's going to be held September 2nd through 5th. And folks, East Lake is one of the most prestigious and beautiful golf clubs in the country. If you've never been to the tournament, you're going to be wowed by the course. The amenities and how well you're treated there. Go online to tourchampionship.com to get your tickets today to watch the top 30 players on tour this season decide who will be the FedEx Cup champion and who walks away with a $15 million first place check. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Team. My sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Chip Beck, Michelle Holmes, and Bill Bergen for joining me tonight. Please check out our website nextonthetead.net to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. And speaking of which, scheduled to join me next week are 1989 Open champion Mark Kalkovecchia will be back. 27-time winner on the LPGA Tour, Jane Blaylock will be making her Next on the T debut. As will another one of the top instructors in the game, Jim McClain will also be here. And the wedge guy, Terry Kaler, will be back to update us on how things are going with his Edison wedge line, which, oh, by the way, folks, are the best wedges I've ever played. So it's going to be a great show. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. Folks, you can stream this show as a podcast on a number of great podcasting sites and apps like podcast.co, Apple podcast, Google podcast, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, AudioBoom, player.fm, Odyssey. If you've got a favorite podcasting app or site, and you're not sure if we're on it. Just type in next on the T in the search bar. We're probably on that site as well. And folks, if you enjoy the show, please do me a favor and go online to podcastmagazine.com and vote for the show in their Hot 50 list. When you're on that site, click on Hot 50. You are going to see a tab for that right at the top. You're going to get a drop down list that includes Hot 50 voting. Then click on that. And then just type in the name of the show. You'll see a show uh, field right there. And then right next to it, you'll see a host field. So type in Next on the T and then Chris Mascaro. I would really appreciate your support. Folks, as always, thank you for choosing to listen to this show tonight. I really appreciate the fact that you continue to make Next on the T a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.